birds of a redneck are? Oh, boy. Watch this. What? <laughs> You're on, it looks like. Okay. All right, the Jeff Foxworthy Show. It's the afternoon session, and I, and I got to let you know, it's the thing that I fear the most. All throughout my scholastic career, I did everything I could to avoid afternoon classes. So God bless you. I, my first year at Elam Bible Institute, afternoon theology class, my closest friend who struggled staying awake came up with an idea he thought was surefire. When he began to doze, he took his pen and clenched it in his teeth. And he figured that if he began to fall asleep, his jaw would slack and the pen would start to slip and it would wake him up. The only problem is, well, we had to wear ties at Elam, jackets and ties. And he had on a sky blue tie. He fell asleep and the pen fell out of his mouth and drew a perfect line right down the center of his tie. And the theology professor in the middle of his lecture saw this happening and stopped and watched and went hysterical. He lost control, burst out laughing, and there was another great idea whose time has not yet come. Just keep your pens out of your mouths. Listen, I I have asked a couple more uh, ladies from our church to come and share just briefly uh, something on their heart related to what God has been doing in our church and in them. So, ladies, why don't you come? And I need a microphone. Um, my name is Margaret Ingram, and um, revival started in 1994 at TLG. Well, I wasn't going there yet, and God had been showing up in my home, and the churches that I was going to, I was looking to but whenever I sought his face, he would show up. So um, I said, you got to lead me someplace where I can get some help, and I went to CLG. And the first time I went was a morning, and it was Pastor Leon there. And um, he prayed over me, I, but I locked my legs because I didn't want to fall down. It's crazy. Uh, and it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, I wanted all of God, but like this. Um, so I came back at night, and the first, there were manifestations, but the manifestations that had the most effect on me when I look back is, um, I was raised Catholic, and you would sit, and then you would stand for a song and sit. People were raising their hands, and they were worshiping for hours, sometimes two hours. And I would be, what is going, what is wrong? And I would hear um, there's something in the air conditioning. They're gassing. And so I said to my friend, I said, this is what I'm hearing. And she said, that's what I'm hearing. So and I'm like, why, why, would, why would God not want us to worship him? I couldn't, you know, of course it's not. Uh, the, that voice wasn't God. But I had the hardest time entering into worship. Um, and you, talk, you opened it up about, you were talking, we're not supposed to have any gods. But my gods were worry, finance, my children. And slowly God started to um, break that off of me. And I could enter a little more into worship. 
And then he started to teach me to worship him in all things. When your mother dies, when you and your five children and your husband don't know where you're going to live, and when your daughter is born with Down syndrome. And through all those things, he taught me, you learn, Jesus learned obedience by what he suffered. And it's not to hurt you, it's to say, get your eyes on me and I will bring you into the place of freedom and everlasting joy. And so where before I could only sit for literally five minutes at first and worship, I, I, before I would say, oh, get the, get the message on already. Now it's like, oh, he's coming. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I, I learned to, he, just like your prayer was, he is worth, he is worth through all things, reverence and adoration and Pastor Dave is one that helped me get there because I would see him. He doesn't talk about his personal life much, but my daughter was friends with his daughter, so I would hear his physical struggles. And he would get up every night, every Wednesday night, and worship for hours. And I, I would, the Lord would say, you can do this, Maggie. You can, you can open your mouth over the fear that you're feeling over the pain that you're feeling. And once I did that, um, his love, his peace flooded in more and more. And now it is by far the most, um, the greatest thing is to worship your king in all things, in all things. And I learned that from the manifestations that I thought were crazy, waving banners. Um, I remember waving banners when... Um, when I first heard the Lord say, get up and wave a banner, and I was like, oh, oh, I am not doing that. And, and um, I had such fear um, about my youngest daughter was just, um, uh, uncontrollable, would have um, lots of anxiety, lots of fears, and I did not know the answer. And he said, get up and wave those banners in the midst of it. And when I did, his love overtook me, and and even though we didn't have the answers to it right then, we walked through it in peace and joy and, and not in constant fear. So those manifestations that I thought were crazy, um, when I opened myself up to it is really what, what set me freer, free from fear. So I encourage right. you to... Um, Ask him for help, because I said, I, I need help with this, you know, and he, he, he'll help you. Very good. Thank you. Hi, I'm Noreen Keeler, and God got a hold of my life in 1975, and he just opened my eyes to his word. It made me so aware that his word is living, and it's active, and it applies to us today. And... Fast forward 20 years, he had put a desire in my heart to worship. I just longed for worship, and that was before he brought me into renewal. Then he brought me into the renewal, and there was such awesome worship. It's what my heart longed for before I was even there. 
and I loved it. And between Wednesdays and Sundays seemed like an eternity. It seemed like I couldn't, I just hated the wait in between. There was such a longing within my spirit to be in the presence of God. I would go and I would come up for prayer every time there was an altar call or any time anybody prayed. I would be up there, and especially in the beginning, nothing would happen. People would pray for me over and over. I'd stay up there, and people would pray, and I wouldn't fall down like everybody around me. And it's like, what's wrong with me, God? Am I that difficult? Is it that hard to break through? What is wrong with me that I can't receive from you? What I didn't know at the time was he was working inside, You know, it wasn't about the manifestations. It wasn't about what was going on around me. It was about what God was doing inside me. And um, I just kept going back for more. We'd have guest speakers. I'd go up for prayer, and everybody dropped but me, (laughs) or so it seemed. And God still used it. He put a longing within me. And what has happened, even now, as that season has passed, the longing is still there. The desire is still there. I hunger for him more today than I did before. And now, now I know that I can have that private worship time myself at home. I don't have to be in church. I don't have to wait for Wednesday or Sunday to be alone with God and to have that time to open up my heart and to welcome him in and say, God, I just want to be with you. I don't want what your hand can give. I don't want you to heal this. I don't want you to provide this. I just want to be in your presence. I just want to worship you. I just want to adore you. That's all I want. And I'm so grateful that he honors that. So I encourage you when you're not here, put on Christian music. I used to put Christian music on for years. It was nice, but somewhere along the line, God worked in me. It was more than nice. It was real. The words were real, and I could enter into his presence in a whole different way. So I encourage you to keep pressing in, keep going for it, even if it doesn't feel like anything's changing, if it doesn't feel like anything's happening, just go for it. God has more for you. All right. Thanks. In our meetings, uh, I shared with you we did not want to focus on what was going on as far as physical manifestations, which were nothing more than human response to touch from the Almighty. So when we would open the altar area for prayer, I would always, in the invitation, say this. When you come down, please don't put anything on and don't hold anything off. There is no standard of conduct by which you will be measured. Don't think you have to act a certain way to impress anybody. You just come. But if God touches you, don't fight off what he's doing. Just receive it and figure he's got something special for you. Hallelujah. Well, all right, here we go. Session Three, I've already shared with you that revival biblically is the restoration or renewal of something lost or diminished. And what's lost or diminished is most often 
passion and presence. Our passion and the presence of God. Today, I want to focus, or this afternoon, I want to focus specifically on the passion aspect leading up to the presence aspect. And I I would ask that you'd listen to the passion of the psalmist in Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty! My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young. A place near your altar, O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are praising you ever and ever. And jumping to verse 10, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper. Remember that. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Psalm 84 has been called a psalm of longing. A psalm of longing. Let me give you the background. Psalm 84 is attributed to the sons of Korah. The Korahites were a family of priests responsible as functioning as doorkeepers. They served first at the tabernacle and then when the temple was built served there as well. The doorkeeper is one literally who stands at the threshold. Doorkeeper's function was to serve and to guard. Now, let me give you some deeper background. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the ark of God was captured by the Philistines. In that season, Israel was a mess. They were unfaithful in following the Lord. They were unfaithful in serving the Lord. And in a battle against the Philistines, the ark was taken to accompany the army, thinking surely the ark of the covenant will gain us victory. But they used the ark more as a good luck charm than anything else. Now, let me talk about the ark. The ark of the covenant is located, when you think of the tabernacle or the temple, in the Holy of Holies. It's the innermost place. In Exodus 25, starting in verse 17, the Lord gave instructions regarding the ark. He said, Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim, uh, angels, out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other And make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. And the cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover, meaning their heads are bowed. Place the cover on top of the ark and put on top on top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you 
and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Now, there were instructions to build the ark. If you have seen, and I referenced this earlier, if you have seen Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, they did a terrific job in depicting the ark. They got it pretty well right. So if you can snap that picture and freeze it in your head, uh, you will understand it. It is a chest. It is overlaid with gold. Inside would have been the tablets of the law, a jar of manna, and Aaron's staff, which had budded. The lid on the top of this was called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. That's where the angels were with their wings spread up and their faces bowed down looking at the mercy seat, the cover. On the day of atonement, this is described in Luke 16, one day per year the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice pouring blood on the atonement cover for the sins of the people. In Leviticus 16.2, the Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, behind the curtain, in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. The mercy seat, the atonement cover, on the top of the ark was the place God chose to localize his manifest presence. Now, when you read in the Gospels that when Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, that exposed the interior of the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the place of God's presence signifying, symbolizing the access of all who believe in Jesus to enter therein. Back to the story. The ark of God was captured by the Philistines, but God afflicted them terribly until they caught the idea that maybe what they were doing and having the ark wasn't such a good idea, and they returned it to Israel in a town called Bet Shemesh. Sadly, several people seeing the ark there got curious. They went up, they looked in it, they died. God struck them down. The townspeople there in Beth Shemesh said in 1 Samuel 6.20, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Their attitude was, get this thing out of here. They understood it was where the presence of God was localized and they couldn't take it. And so the ark was taken to a nearby town, Kiriath-Jerim, and brought to the house of Abinadab. The ark from that point on simply sat in obscurity for approximately 60 years. Until we read this in 2 Samuel chapter 6. David brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bela of Judah to bring up, there, up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. 
Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act, and therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark. Now, two problems here regarding the moving of the ark. Number one, it was on a cart. It was supposed to be carried by priests. There were on the sides of the ark rings through which you put two poles, and the priests picked that up and bore the ark on their shoulders. The second problem was that Uzzah, regardless of his intentions, touched it. And that is considered an irreverent act, and he was struck down. And so then, reading on, David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah, or break out against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Obed-Edom is one of my favorite Bible characters, and you're about to hear why. David's response to Uzzah's death was twofold, anger and fear. Now, we are not told that David's anger was directed at the Lord. I believe it was more directed at the situation and probably at himself for not being more careful in transporting the ark as it should have been, as was prescribed in the law. David also experienced, maybe for the first time, a real fear of the Lord. This is serious. And so the ark, I think, hastily was brought to the house of Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom, to this point, is just an obscure Levite, a priest. And suddenly, the ark of the Lord is sitting in his house. And something happened. In 2 Samuel 6, verse 12, King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. First Chronicles chapter 15 is a parallel passage, and we read there that David told the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers, to sing joyful songs accompanied by musical instruments, lyres, harps, cymbals. So the Levites appointed a, a bunch of guys whose names I won't attempt, and we read there in verse 24, Shebaniah, Joshaphat, Nathaniel, Amasai, Zechariah, 
Benaniah and Eleazar the priest were to blow the trumpets before the ark of God. Obed-Edom and Jehiah were also to be doorkeepers for the ark. Something had happened at Obed-Edom's house. Something had happened to Obed-Edom. When you look at the whole story, the ark had been at Abinadab's house for decades. And we have no record of that time. There's nothing said about Abinadab being greatly blessed, his household being greatly blessed, everything he had being greatly blessed. But the ark was with Obed-Edom for just three months. And we are told that his life and the lives of his household were blessed by God. Why the difference between Abinadab's house and the house of Obed-Edom? I think, That for Abinadab, who knew about Uzzah being struck down, I think he stored the ark. I think it may have been lawn furniture. But Obed-Edom and his household honored it. They honored it. I think Obed-Edom had the principle of 1 Samuel 2.30, which we referenced this morning. I think he had that principle in his heart. Those who honor me, I will honor, says the Lord. Now, I'm going to use my sanctified imagination. Feel free to come there with me. It can be a dangerous place. Obed-Edom was blessed because he honored God enjoyed in his presence. Remember, there on the top of the ark, between the bowed down cherubim, was the localized presence of God. That didn't change just because it wasn't in the tabernacle or the temple. It was that way in Obed's Edom house as well. He was blessed because he honored the presence of God. He was so blessed that it caused David to grow envious. And so finally, the ark came up to Jerusalem. Once the ark was in its place, Obed-Edom became a doorkeeper. He stood at the very threshold. I would imagine it was a sort of two-edged sword. Whereas he had the Ark of the Covenant in his living room, he now was on the outside, not allowed to even look in. But nevertheless, he was close. He was as close as a man could get unless you were the high priest. He stood at the threshold. And as he stood there, he did so with the sons of Korah who served as doorkeepers for the ark and as musicians who ministered with music before the tabernacle, before the temple was built. He stood with the sons of Korah, who wrote Psalm 84. And maybe, just maybe as they stood together, Obed-Edom 
told his story? I would have, wouldn't you? Perhaps he told of the day totally, unexpectedly, of the arrival of the ark at his house. Perhaps he told of how he was at first stricken with fear, knowing how it had ended up there. But then I would imagine the story would have shifted in its temperament as he told of the immediate sense of God's presence and glory in his home. Who knows, perhaps he told of household chores that were postponed by family members without rebuke or punishment, postponed so they could simply be near the ark of God and stand in his living presence. I'm sure he told of the abundance of life and the blessing that came to every aspect of his family, of his life, because of God's presence. And maybe, just maybe, as the sons of God heard the stories, heard the passion, saw the longing in Obed-Edom, they expressed that passion of longing recorded in Psalm 84. A passion and longing that was birthed in their hearts as it had been in the heart of Obed-Edom. And so they wrote, My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. God's presence not only blessed Obed-Edom and his household and everything he had, it ruined Obed-Edom for anything else. And so he stood as doorkeeper on the very threshold as a guard and as an attendant of the ark of the Lord where the presence of God was. I have a deep longing for God's presence. A driving longing, a craving And I, because of his presence, am a ruined man. I feel a great stirring within at the thought of being in God's presence. Earlier I quoted Annie Dillard, who said regarding our worship services, ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. I have been drawn to a place from which I can never return. 
And so was Obed-Edom. He couldn't go into the most holy place, but he could stand at the threshold. And I am praying that God will ruin us. Me and you. The church of Jesus Christ. That he will ruin us with his presence and glory to the point that we can never recover. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus breathed his last. And I see that Jesus died for two primary reasons, redemption and access. He died to redeem to God a people to call his very own. He died to redeem us from the power and penalty of sin. But he also died to restore us to a relationship with our Heavenly Father and give us access to him. Not just from afar, but access to his heart and indeed to his presence. But commonly, Sadly, something happens to us along the way. And it springs from a good thing. Because you see, when we are saved, God puts his spirit within us. And a God consciousness and a God kinship is birthed within our heart. This God consciousness and God kinship brings us to life and gives us a growing awareness of God. This growing awareness of God, in turn, causes a growing awareness of not only God's love, but His holiness as well. This, in turn, it's a cascading thing, makes us aware of our sinfulness and selfishness. And we lose our way. Not everyone but most of us. And we move from focusing on relationship and presence, access and kinship, to a focus on how we walk. A focus on making it through our day as best we can because of the birth of that God consciousness and God kinship makes us want to please him. Our focus becomes our walk to the diminishing of our relationship and intimacy with God, and we begin to emphasize conduct over passion. Does it sound familiar? But the sons of Korah, right... How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Psalm 42, also of the sons of Korah. 
As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? Passion and presence. Anything else will lead to a walk that is focused on our walk. A lacking of passion and presence will lead to a dry and weak Christianity and a dry and weak church. I think there are lessons to be learned from Obed-Edom. Similar lessons that were learned this morning from the Beatitudes regarding positioning ourselves for God's favor. Let me share with you the lessons to be learned from Obed-Edom and applied during revival and each and every day. These lessons I, I refer to as the 4-H club. Easy to remember. I remember, Obed-Edom had the ark in his house. Because of the ark, he had the presence of God in his house. And because of the presence of God, he and everything he had was blessed. Abinadab, he had the ark for 60 years and no record of blessing. Why? Difference in attitude. The first thing is honor. I've hit this several times. 1 Samuel 2.30 Those who honor me, I will honor but those who despise me will be disdained. When the ark ended up at Obed-Edom's house, again, using my sanctified imagination, and remember, he's a Levite, I envision him gathering his family, family meeting. Kids, We have been chosen to keep the Ark of the Covenant safe, to guard it. It's not just a box, it's not just a piece of furniture. God has chosen in His good pleasure. To dwell between the angels. It's his localized presence. And it's something to rejoice over. It's something to marvel at. But it's also something to fear. To reverently fear. Because if we don't honor that God is in this place, we will not be blessed. So kids, be careful. Family members, household servants, draw near, but be careful. Enjoy His presence. 
but honor him. Honor what he's doing. Be pleased with what pleases God. And always, always, always give God and God alone the honor. Honor God in worship. Worship is so primary to honoring God, to, to inviting, hosting, entertaining the presence of God. Worship. God inhabits the worship of his people. Psalm 22, he's enthroned on their worship. Worship is primary more than songs. Worship is an honoring of God and a quest, a quest for his presence. Please, please, when you gather to worship, don't just sing songs. Pour your heart into it. You are seeking God. You are inviting him to come. You're enthroning him. Building a habitation for him. Build a good one. There's no time for spectating. Margaret talked about the waving of flags and things. Listen. I think I know Doug enough to say that if it's in the Bible, it's okay. If it's in the Bible, it's okay. Read the Psalms and see what the Psalms say about worship. It's raucous. I'm just not into that. Get there. Get there. Paul says to Timothy, be an example of the believer. You decide to take that seriously. I'm going to go to worship, and if people look at me, they are going to see what a worshiper is supposed to look like. Worship. Men, worship. See, we men, we are the worst. We're too cool for school, you know? And, and we're hesitant. And so we stand there, and, and somebody, like Margaret shared, starts to wave a flag, and, and we don't like it. So what? God does. The waving of flags is biblical in worship. People raise their hands. I'm not into that. God is. Scripture says, Paul, again, I would that men everywhere lift holy hands. And so how do we start? Well, take a biblical posture. This is not one. And this is not another. And gripping the front of your seat with white-knuckled intensity is not. If that's you guys, get your hands out of your pocket, drop your hands, rest your hands lightly on the chair in front of you, and then roll them over. That's all. You're in a posture of receiving. And then, outrageously, lift them about a foot. And then another foot. And all of a sudden, we're worshiping biblically and go from there. Everybody's got to start somewhere. And sing out. I can't sing. God gave you a voice. He gave you a voice. Well, if I sing out, I'll disturb the people around me. Come and sit in the front row. Worship. We honor. We honor. I believe Obed-Edom and his household honored God. And they were blessed. The second is hunger. Hunger. 
Hunger is not just a craving for what we don't have. It's a holy dissatisfaction with what we do, what we do have. Obed-Edom developed a holy dissatisfaction with the status quo once he came into contact with the presence of God. He developed a longing, a hunger, a thirst. We need to take the potential, the promise, the possibility of encountering the living presence of God much more seriously than we do. We don't want to have the attitude, well, if God wants to do something, he knows where I'm sitting. No, no, no. We we need to engage in a pursuit, a hunger for God that drives us to seek his face, his presence. Say, well, I, I just don't have that. Um, I don't want to make it up. You're right. So ask. Father, make me hungry for you. Touch my priorities. Touch the things that I long for and replace them with you. God hit the reset button. I just told a story a few weeks ago. Several years ago. Uh, three football seasons ago. I'm watching football. And all of a sudden, my television makes this funny fizzing sound. And it flashes. And all of a sudden, it was pink. Everything was pink. Now, guys, you understand this. You cannot watch football when all of the football players are wearing pink tights. It doesn't work. And so I had to speak to my wife and say, Marsha, I'm just, I'm so sorry. We're going to have to buy a new TV. And she immediately filled with compassion, said, of course you do. Well, anyways, I did. And I got that thing home. Set it all up and look good. But I thought, I can make this better. And so I started fooling around with scope and ratio and tint and all this stuff. And and pretty soon, it's not looking so good. But there on the control, as you go into settings, you find there's a thing you can click on that says, Restore to Factory Settings. I push that button, and that picture snapped back to greatness. And I could say, Marsha, come and look at the way I set this TV up. (laughs) Restore to factory settings. Remember the psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters, aren't he? He restoreth my soul. The only time we read that is at funerals. That's a psalm for the living, not the dead. He restores my soul. He revives my soul. He pushes the factory reset button. And so pray. Every Guys especially, but all of us need to pray, God, I need a factory reset. I have so messed up the values, the ratios, the color tint, all of that in my life, I can't get it back to where it belongs. So God, touch me. Put within me a hunger, 
a thirst, a holy dissatisfaction that will only be satisfied by you. Do that work, Father. I can't do it myself. So we've got honor, we've got hunger, and then we've got holiness. I am sure Obed-Edom would have said to his family, listen, I think we've been pretty good to this point as a family, but I want to tell you, no more fooling around. Kids, you will not argue with your mother. You'll never talk back. You want to fight? Take it in the yard. But not here. Not here. Here, we walk in holiness. Now, I trust that that holiness will spill out into the yard, but holiness, a set-apartness. When you read in the Old Testament of Israel's journey through the wilderness, God not only localized his presence in a pillar of cloud and fire, but he said, I am going to walk through your camp. I'm going to walk right through it. And I don't want to see any unclean thing. We get anxious when we have guests come for dinner and clean our house top to bottom. What if we got word that God was coming? Wow. Delete all the things I've got on my DVR change my favorite programming, throw out anything that might in any way be offensive to God, probably go kosher. Holiness, that that set-apartness for God, that sense of living out of who we are, children of the Most High God. Not because it earns us anything, but because it sets us in a place to receive something. Just to receive. So we've got honor, we've got hunger, we've got holiness, and then we've got humility. I can imagine after Obed-Edom instructed his family and reminded them lovingly often how wonderfully honored they were to have the ark in their house. And it was a privilege that no other human being on the planet had. After they, they were instructed to, to honor and, and to reverently fear and to hunger and to walk in holiness, I think he would have said to them, as the blessings began to manifest and pile up, It says everything he had was blessed. I think he would have said, listen, kids, wife, family, this is all from God. We did not do this. We did not do this. It's all of God. And we need to give him all the glory. Never taking any for ourselves." We learned these four points at our church 
from Obed-Edom, but also from walking through God's visitation. We sought to guard the visitation of God by honoring what it was God was doing. We maintained a hunger and a thirst. But we, we preached and sought to walk in holiness, asking grace that we might more and more so. But the humility issue over and over and over again, I would emphasize from the pulpit and to our staff, we did not do this. And if we begin to claim it as our own, God did this because we deserved it. God did this because we're so wonderful. God did this. If we do that, Scripture says God will not share his glory with another. He will pack up and move down the road to a church that will give him all the glory. And so we received with thanksgiving and humility all that God was doing. These four points, honor, hunger, holiness, and humility, create and maintain an environment for God's presence. It's an environment that he likes, and it is something to strive for, for his honor and glory. Amen. Now, I asked Pastor Doug if I could pray over you guys and close in that way, although there will be prayer and ministry time. I want to pray blessing on you. You've heard it spoken last night and today. Uh, during God's wonderful time of visitation, one of the simplest and most profound prayers that was given to us and that we employed during that time was very simply, more, Lord. More, Lord. You know, rather than telling God what we wanted, we were just saying amen to what he was doing. More, Lord. More what? Everything. More of your glory, more of your grace, more of your love, more of your mercy, more of your holiness, more of your wonders and your signs, more of whatever it is you are doing, more. And, and we even discovered, as we prayed for people, if God began doing something in somebody's life, and our, our job was simply to come into agreement with that. And, and so we'd be praying and who knows, maybe there'd be gold dust, maybe there wouldn't. Maybe a person would begin to tremble. Maybe there'd be some vibrating, who knows. But whatever began to go on, we would kind of smile and say, oh, more, Lord, more, more. Especially in, in this, I think God has forgiven us for this. Um, if somebody really began to be significantly lit up by the presence of God, you know, that the voltage was sort of flowing, that was the time you would love to say, more, Lord, more, Lord. And, and we would add to that another two-word prayer that on our part was gleeful but equally merciless at times, would say, more, Lord, don't relent. 
Don't relent. More, Lord. I think God loved it, to tell you the truth. And so with that in mind, I, I want to pray for you folks. that be all right? Let's all stand. Father, I bless you. I bless you. And we together give you all the honor and the glory that is due your name. Father, you're wonderful. And I thank you that you've redeemed us. You've made us your very own. And you draw us to yourself. Help us, Father, to respond to your drawing and to run hard after you. God, would you stir us from wherever we are and draw us out. Draw us out from our small places. Draw us out from our safe places. And would you give us, Father, an enlarged capacity to receive all that you have for us. Deepen yourself in us, Father. Deepen yourself in us. We want a bigger God. Not that you're not immense already, but God, we have categorized you, packaged you, refined you, defined you, and drew circles around you and hoped that you wouldn't cross over. God, magnify. Be magnified in our lives. We want a bigger God and bigger hearts to receive greater revelation of your love and your mercy for us. So I pray for my brothers and sisters here at New River. Father, come down and bless them. Bless their lives. Bless their health, their finances. Bless their hearts by enlarging their capacity, by healing the wounds, by softening any hardness, by delivering from fear. Bless them. And Father, Whatever you have done in this place last night and today, I give you all the glory. Whatever seeds have been sown, Father, you did it. And so I pray more, Lord. More, Lord. I pray that you would make a name for yourself in this people, in this church, in Pastor Doug in Karis, in the worship ministry, in all that this church does. Make a name for yourself and stand strong in this place so that when any walk through this door, their heart would be, surely God is in this place. Amen.